So how was the Renaissance Fair? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Bad. I, I almost died. Um, hmm? It was ninety. <laughs> it was ninety-five degrees. Uh, oh my god! So there were like heat stroke warnings, which I did not heed. Uh, you dressed as a Viking, right? I dressed like a fucking Viking, uh, and that includes sixty pounds of chain mail, uh, oh a god. shield, a giant black shield, and then fur. Uh, so it was really hot, and wow. I got I got dizzy and. <laughs> Why didn't you just go shirtless? Because <laughs> I had to be prepared for the snow. <laughs> it's Wisconsin, after all. It is. I don't know. <clears throat> uh, besides that, it was good. There, there was uh, uh, lots of drunks. <laughs> lots, lots of, of revelry. Lots of boobs. Uh, what? <laughs> it's the run fair. <laughs> I didn't know that was like a feature. Oh, it's a feature. <laughs> oh, God. The old double feature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow uh obviously i've never been to a red fair right well you'll have to go with us next time because it's uh it's an experience <laughs> it'd be cool to be invited next time i'm just kidding <laughs> you live in texas <laughs> <laughs> that's the joke oh <laughs> uh, uh, yeah uh, actually, I've had a couple of people down here who have shown interest in going to a Ren Fair. Oh, good. You should start yeah. your own. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I yes I should. Um, yeah. Uh, that's good water. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I think we should just get started because I am so excited to talk about your Ban Granier. Ah, okay. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know anything about that, but yeah. Okay. And I don't know anything about Nancy Wake. Okay, well, she's Except that Nancy it made me Grave. think of... <laughs> I don't know. Except, what did you what do you know? Uh, uh, nothing. Okay. I was going to say, there's this thing that uh, Jocko Willink does on his podcast, the Jocko podcast. Mm-hmm. And that is his real name, Jocko, hmm. uh, apparently. Uh, he's just like this badass, like, special forces guy or some shit. Ooh. Um but I was listening to his podcast on the Baton Death March, which mm. is just horrific. Mm -hmm. um, listen if you want to be diagnosed with major depression. Oh, God. Um, but he does this thing where he'll read something awful, and then he'll just go... <sighs> like that. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you know, you know, oh. that's when things got dark, even for Jocko Willink. How? Okay. Yeah. Like, how does that relate? Uh... uh I was about to do that because you made a joke that made me want to just go. Oh, I see. Okay. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let's mark this. Oh, we never clapped, did we? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's mark for clap. All right. All right. And one, two, three, clap. All right. Let's see. Four, four, eight. Uh, am I getting any echoing on my, my end, by the way? Not that I can hear. I'm in my basement, so... Yeah, you sound better than usual. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you always sounded good, but now you sound better than usual. Last night, I was up late reading about Nazis, as I do. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but I found this really interesting thing. Um, mm -hmm. So they put out this piece of propaganda in, I think... 1938, 39, around there somewhere. Yeah. Um, where they had this picture of this guy, and he's, like, the most Aryan dude ever. Uh, and they're like, this is the ideal German soldier. 
and his name was Werner Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Uh, and he was considered, well, he was half Jewish. I was going to say Goldberg sounds Jewish. Goldberg sounds Jewish. Yeah. So, um, they didn't know that though at the time. And so they oh. just took a picture of him. They're like, this is the ideal German soldier. And, uh, he was half Jewish. How about that? Wow. That <laughs> was an interesting story. Interesting. And the only reason I found him was because I was reading about Margaret Sanger. Um, mm-hmm who is an interesting person that we will probably cover at some point on this show. Oh, okay, cool. And this other guy named Lothrop Stoddard, who is a Klansman. Oh, wow. And then I was reading about John Pemberton, the guy who invented Coca-Cola, so I was all over the place last night. <laughs> the worst one of them all. Oh, the worst of them all. <laughs> so uh, I, was, I, was, I only got there because I was, I was reading about our subject for the, for the day, and he is so... All over the fucking place. Just, you buckle yourself in, my sir. All right, I'm buckled. All right, so how about this? Let's thoroughly get started. Thoroughly buckled. <laughs> Stay thoroughly buckled. It's better than staying woke. Mm-hmm. I tell you about my roommate texting me at two in the morning to say, stay woke. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, uh, I was woke. <laughs> Good. So the three fathers load up their super soakers with holy water, sharpen their crucifixes and recite the Lord's Prayer, Mm. and the nuns are let out, and the games begin. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, Morning Edition, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your sleepy host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, James D. Say hi, James. Subscribe to my Twitch account for, for more for, for more Fortnite videos. <laughs> I will never play Fortnite. <laughs> we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down these characters from the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of all the major events in these people's lives and how they responded to them. We also hope to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, James, who do we have this week? We have... Urbane Grandire <laughs> and Nancy Wake. Wake me up inside. That was a joke. I oh wrote that previously. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> to the history uh, lab. Here we go. Two men. One, a woman who did something. <laughs> You're golden, pony boy. <laughs> Two men, one a woman who did some shit in France and was at the top of the Gestapo's hit list. The other, a Catholic priest who became a witch and did some other shit that we'll talk about if James can get his life together and stop crying like a little bitch. You don't know me! (laughs) So James, tell me, if you had to eat a pineapple right now, how would you do it? Ah, okay. Uh, well, let's see. I would pack up my bags, uh, including the pineapple. I would just slip that into my backpack. Then I would, uh, get a shovel and dig my way to the deepest circle of Dante's Inferno, where Satan is perpetually chewing on Judas. 
And I would walk up, I'd grab Judas, yank him out there because he's suffered enough. Then I'd <laughs> shove that round pineapple right into Satan's mouth. And I would force him to chew it. Chew it, you fucking bastard! This is what you get for creating the devil's fruit. So I is wouldn't. The pineapple, the devil's um, fruit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Haven't you ever read the Garden of Eden? Uh, it's a pineapple yeah. tree. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> pineapple Express. I don't know. All right. That's what I would do. Yeah. Okay. What about you? If I had to eat a, a pineapple right now, um. <clears throat> blend it up, mm-hmm. nice and nice and good, uh, nice and good blend, nice good blend. <laughs> and I would throw that shit into a cup of coffee. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> I I knew you were less than a man, but now I know there is no redemption. <laughs> there is no redemption. So basically, when you go to hell to have Satan chew up your pineapple, it'll just be me. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, it will. <laughs> getting chewed on by Judas. I don't know. <laughs> no, you're chewing. Well, okay. Well, either way. Yeah, never mind. All right. <laughs> Fucking whatever. So I either way, into I'm into coffee. it. Okay. <laughs> and then I get one of those massive straws that you get like at Panera Bread mm. when you order a smoothie or whatever. I just slurp that shit right up through my nose. Oh, God damn. Yep. You knew. <laughs> oh, did you just hear me gag? <laughs> <laughs> My my body is just so revolted what? on the deepest you're, of levels. <laughs> you're gagging at me for once? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> I, see, I've had so many reports from people talking about the burrito story of you just <laughs> sitting in my brother's closet, half naked, sweating all over the floor and eating three Burger King burritos. That was not one of my finest moments. <laughs> <laughs> it was your transcendence. Absolutely. Well, I have to I have to eat a lot so that I can transform when I make a cocoon. And what I are you transforming into? Float away. A liberal, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Computer, please bring up Orban Grandier and Nancy Drew. <laughs> Nancy Wake. So Aaron. Yes. Tell me. Uh-huh. What is Urbane Grandier best known for? And we're gonna mispronounce the name. The French pronunciation is something like Urbane Grandier, and I can't do that, so I'm just gonna call him Urbane Grandier. Okay. Um, <laughs> so he's best known for selling his soul to Satan and for being corrupt as fuck! Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So but a socialist. Gets- it gets deeper than that, so we'll get- Oh, goddammit, James! <laughs> I was listening to the Ned Kelly and Trophim Lysenko episode. You're pulling that shit the whole time, and I'm just like, da-da-da-da-da, going along. And you're like, why the hell isn't he laughing at my jokes? And then you start to figure it out, so you just start saying more obscene shit. <laughs> exactly. I just slip in there whatever, whatever I can. Just like the fucking kulaks. <laughs> yes. All right. Okay. So, tell me what this dude looks like. This is the sexiest priest I've ever laid eyes on. Oh, shit. I put a picture. You look... You oh, see the picture? shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, you did. Wow. Do you think he's that sexy? Uh, yeah. Okay. I am hetero, and I am not now, now contemplating if I'm something else. That is one sexy priest. I mean, you can be heterosexual and or Bane Grandiosexual if you want. That, uh, uh, that's what I am. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
and look underneath. It's Orbanus Grandarius. Oh, wow. You have to Latinize it all Ooh. in order for it to be magic. So, uh -huh. uh, I guess I'll do a brief description of what he actually looks like. Um, okay. The only picture we have of him is looks like an etching. Uh, and it's from that period of time where everybody had massive Snapchat eyes. Um, <laughs> and looked vaguely suspicious and hateful. Yeah. Um, yeah Urba cool. Urbanus Grandarius has, uh, <laughs> he has James hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Massive locks the just old on the w. side of the head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, let's say, let's just move on here. So what, uh, what well, he's Nancy? got, he's got what? a collar. Oh. And those things look like the mangy wings of a pigeon. They're just sticking out there. I love yeah? it. I love it. Are you gonna, are you gonna take my job, James, describing my own guy? I just, I just, just wanted to, I just wanted the You don't think collar, I can man. describe I just my boy? <laughs> <clears throat> so what was Nancy Wake best known for, James? Nancy Wake is best known for being a famous resistance fighter and special agent during WW Dose. So, so, basically, Haley Atwell from Captain America? Sure, yeah, we can go with that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I what haven't seen Captain like? America, so that's a what? shot in the dark. What? Oh. <laughs> I don't know why I'm giving you what. I didn't see any of the latest Avengers movies, even though I wanted to. I haven't seen the first Avengers movie. How's that for just being out of it? Countercultural, yeah. counter-revolutionary, you kulak. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so, uh, what did she look like? Oh, my God, she is gorgeous. Long black hair, beautiful eyes that look straight to your heart, a slight mischievous smile, and hands that could beat a German soldier to death. Press X to doubt. <laughs> I'm Googling it. I want to see if oh, she's okay. as gorgeous as you're saying. And, and Do she we have more than one picture of her? Uh, there, there are a few. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Carry on. Sorry. I'm, I'm just going to well, Google. Never mind. I had some... Uh, never mind. Go, you go got on. something? No, I was just it's looking. Fine. It's fine. I Dude, can she's share fucking her. old. I don't know what you're talking about. What? No, <laughs> not, not the old pictures. I'm talking like... <laughs> Yeah, she died when she was like 92, okay? Those are not the pictures we're looking at. We're uh, The World War II days, okay? Oh, okay. When most of her story is, you know... She looks like a, ha a slightly happier, less crazy Rosie O'Donnell. Or not Rosie O'Donnell, a Roseanne Barr. Okay, that works. I get them mixed up. Oh, sure. wait. Here's a better one. Okay, I'm with you. She's pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty yeah. cool looking. All right. Yeah, yeah. So that's but she did beat a German soldier to death. That's she did. Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's more than I can say about myself. So, um, well, <laughs> I feel like if I tried to do that today, though, that'd be actually a crime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So <laughs> I was gonna make a terrible joke, but I'm not. I'm not gonna go. Uh, I think you mind. should make the joke, James. No, it's it's below even me. Wow. I was gonna say- I'm just gonna say it. I was gonna say my hands have beat something else to death. <laughs> You're f- <laughs> No! What? See? I outdid you! <laughs> you did, you fucking scumbag! So 
shall we talk about <laughs> Orban Grandier's early life? Yes. Okay, so to start out, I have to tell you something. Okay. I have basically nothing on this boy's early life. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm pulling what details I can from a book by fucking Aldous Huxley. What? <laughs> yeah, he wrote, he did all the research and did a did an entire book. About, it's an amazing book, by the way. Oh. I couldn't, I, I couldn't stop reading it. Hmm. In fact, I'm still f- reading up the sections that I skipped. Oh, okay. Like, that's part of why I was up so late. Nice. The book is called, and I'm going to mispronounce it because fuck French. <laughs> it's called The Devils of Loudun, hmm. um, which is, that's what it looks like, Loudun. Sure. Um, but, again, it's like, nobody write, wrote back then what the children were doing because, like, nobody was surviving. <laughs> so, right. I guess the most interesting thing about his childhood is, is that he survived childhood. Oh, that, well, that, that's good. Uh, yeah. Point so one. He, <laughs> score one for the Republic. Yeah. So, he was born in 1590 in France in the town of Bouery. <laughs> Would you say Bouer? Uh-huh. Uh, and was educated at the Jesuit College of Bordeaux. Mm, okay. Um, so, it looks like that, uh, it looks like Urbain Grandier was the son of a lawyer uh, and had a decently wealthy background, which hmm. will come up in just a minute. Um, but he did high school, his undergraduate, and his theological studies all at this one college, the Jesuit College of Bordeaux. Okay. Which means he was there for like 10 years. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no way could that get dull. Oh. <clears throat> Nonetheless, he got himself ordained at 25 years old. Uh. Yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> Next year, I could be a priest, James. It it could believe happen. in yourself. Yes, just believe in yourself. You could be a priest too. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. Oh dear. By all accounts, he was not a good priest. <laughs> he was a bad priest. <laughs> Great. Uh huh. Um, <clears throat> and he apparently didn't want. He didn't think he wanted to be the kind of priest who, you know, followed rules and, you know, tried to be holy. So not all that different from most priests today. Uh, yeah, true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's easy to shit on the Catholic Church right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> and by the way, him being unholy as fuck didn't stop him from getting into the order of Saint-Pierre de Marche. <laughs> Saint-Pierre du March. Oh. <laughs> At a place called Ledun, where okay. the sky, and perhaps beyond, was the limit. Oh, so they have so a space he, program. Yes, they have a space program Excellent. in the 1600s. Galactic Jesuits. They're coming <laughs> next summer. <laughs> They're Jesuits from space. I don't know. Uh, no? <laughs> that sketch, what was the... Who did that again? Uh, the Jews in space? Yeah, Spaceballs Man. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What was his name? What is his name? He's still alive. Uh, I don't know. Blazing Saddles. What's... It's the director. Never mind. Doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> so he's at Ludon, right? Mm-hmm. In yeah. this holy order. And he doesn't believe in morals. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <clears throat> yeah, so it's 1617. Urbane has arrived. And this city is not huge. But it wasn't so small either. Mm-hmm. Um... And in The Devils of Ludun, uh, Aldous Huxley does a great job of describing what it might have been like. So I'm going to quote Aldous Huxley here. <clears throat> lazy, but, who, by but the way, acceptable. He was never... No, it's not lazy. <clears throat> I can't get the fucking frog out of my throat. Yeah, reach in with some tweezers and pick up that amphibian <laughs> by its tail and whip it out. <laughs> it's nasty uh, business. Uh, um, but anyway, uh, Huxley makes a point in his book saying that the Catholic Church... 
allowed things to get so corrupt that this revolution was inevitable. Um, go <laughs> figure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was also obvious that noblemen were sending their sons to be priests in order to gain power within the church and therefore mm. over more people. Mm -hmm. So, of course, our guy, Urbane, uh, is the son of a lawyer. And You're he's right. becoming yeah. a priest, right? So this is oh, God. <laughs> pretty clearly some kind of a political power grab. Yeah. By just, we have more priests in the Catholic Church than you. Ho, 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 mm. ho. And that's basically how it worked. Mm -hmm. um, and the, and because of this, there were priestly scandals all over the fucking place. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Um, be because these rich dads were sending their snobby-ass kids to mimic the character of Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> and for some reason, they did exactly the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Catholic Church was basically being occupied by rapey frat bros. Oh, God. <laughs> That's actually pretty oh. much what it was going on. No, I know it is. It's just... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically what Huxley is saying with us. So there you yeah. go. And there are all just, just all kinds of stories from this time in history about priests and rulers and nobles alike just cutting completely loose from any kind of moral restraint. Oh, God. I won't get into them because they're pretty nasty. Yeah. Uh, and this is the environment in which Urbane grew up. Oh. Uh, a world of worse and worse behaviors masked less and less. Sure. And that's important because Urbane is pretty much a frat bro. Uh, he dresses well. He wears expensive clothing. Um, he's known for being handsome, but more so for just being damn good with the ladies. Sure. Um, his attitude about sex is completely opposed to the Catholic priesthood's notorious vow of celibacy. Mm -hmm. In fact, Grandier wrote, <clears throat> quote, A promise to perform the impossible is not binding. <laughs> For the young male, continence is impossible. Therefore, no vow involving continence is binding. Wow. Good <laughs> job. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yeah, wow. No. Hmm. Uh, so, get, yeah, based... What? You get what? three baguettes out of three baguettes for that, <laughs> for that impersonation. Uh, I just winged it, so there you go. Um, <laughs> I never practice a French accent. It's against my religion. <laughs> Why? Because you don't believe in surrendering? I don't I don't believe in, in surrenderism, no, sir. Good. Um, okay, so what he's saying is, like, men can't keep it in their pants, right? Yeah. So making, making a vow of celibacy is absolutely fucking ridiculous. I, well, let's, let's pause here for a second, because yep, that, that's interesting in that mm -hmm. I, I agree with him pretty much. Uh, I, I think a lot of these Catholic sex scandals could be... <clears throat> avoided or at least reined in a bit if we got rid of uh, archaic rules like that because <laughs> we've all gone through puberty and we all know the little rocket engine you have in your pants uh, <laughs> during those years <laughs> yeah and remember like he became a priest at 25 you right know? Yeah, um, but at the same time, I don't know, but I have a feeling that this is going to be like his excuse to to rape or something like that. And well, that's uh, just close. bullshit. Very close. Very, oh, very God. close. <laughs> but not exactly. Um, right. We'll get there. Uh, because Grandier is one of the more complex demons of history, right? Interesting. People say Urbane Grandier was just a bad guy who did all this bullshit. And it's like, as we've learned on this show, mm. that is almost never true. That's true. Um, in fact, Aldous Huxley makes a pretty strong case for basically, well, we'll get there. We'll get okay. There. And I like Huxley because he's a, 
I think he's an agnostic. He's not religious, but he is spiritual. Sure. And he or, wrote this book. Yeah. Well, Go ahead. Yeah, no, sorry, I interrupted. But I'm gonna I'm gonna play the skeptic on this one, alright? Just, just for playful playful interaction. Alright. <laughs> and then we can have the battle of fates at the end. Let's let's do it. We ought to have a skeptic. Yeah. We ought to have a skeptic. Great. Um so <clears throat> basically I didn't just consult Aldous Huxley because his his recount recounting of the events is while it's solid and it's extremely well documented like he has he's cited sources from like from the day sure written in French right it's the closest thing I could get to like a play-by-play for this story yeah 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 yeah. but the end of the book is more commentary than biography which is fine by me I mean that's kind of that's just good journalism in my right yeah you're supposed to offer offer something um, and Aldous Huxley, in my opinion, is a pretty objective kind of guy. Um, so yeah, it from... didn't seem like he. Well, he he does make arguments. Don't get me wrong, but sure, it does seem like he was being. Because I checked the sources. I ch- <laughs> I ch- I checked his sources, James. I checked his sources. <laughs> um, but it's like you go to the Wikipedia page for Urbain Grandier, and you think he's oh he just did this thing that was really awful, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And that's not even the half of it. So sure. <clears throat> anyway. Cool. All right. Uh, on this, on this vow of celibacy. Yeah. So he's saying, it. You can't take it seriously because guys just can't control it. So there you go. Mm. Um, which is a shitty attitude if you're gonna act like you took the vow of celibacy seriously in the first place. Yeah, so that's true. <laughs> he told everyone, "I'm gonna make this vow," and then he said, "But it didn't really mean anything." Yeah. Um. Yeah. So he's a little bit, uh, a little bit hypocritical here. Mm-hmm. It sounds like Mitt uh, Romney. <laughs> I expected you to say Mike Pence, but you said Mitt Romney. <laughs> Either way. And Same that's thing. fine, too. Um, so anyway, he also went on to say that all he saw in his time in the church were a bunch of people who just wanted to get into holy orders for the benefits it offered, not because they wanted to become moral leaders. Wait, I thought that's what getting into the church was. <laughs> yeah. So it's the 1600s, and even he is like, yo, um, I know why I'm doing this. And yeah. I'm not even posing right now. Like, I'm telling you this right. vow is pointless. I'm <laughs> telling you this this whole thing is a pack of lies, but I'm just on, along for the ride. Fair enough. <laughs> um, which <Yes>. is... Which, <laughs> well, it's different from pretending you're holy and then also being monstrous. That's... Well, I, I'm on board with that. Exactly, right. yeah. He, he recognizes <laughs> that the church is corrupt as fuck at this mm-hmm. point in history. Um, and he's like, whatever. So he's kind of like an anti-hero, really, in yeah. a lot of ways. Um... And to his to his benefit, he also happened to be an incredible speaker. Hmm. Um, in fact, he was so good that he made people nervous about how good he was. Oh, shit. <laughs> he could persuade people to do almost anything. <laughs> and one of the things he did a lot was criticize local monks. Oh, okay. Um, he actually saw them as poor fools who had actually been trying to live rightly, um, but were trying to live rightly by doing the wrong things. Interesting. Because he was convinced that the way to holiness was the same as the way to happiness, the way to, the way to nobility. Oh. Um, he thought the satisfaction of various lusts could only be... Uh, were, that was the way to become good. Sure. Right? So, like, you go, <laughs> you know, I feel, like, I feel like sleeping around today. And, you know, that's my point of view on morality, and that's mm. a good thing. So I'm just going to do that, and as long as my conscience is clear, it's good. Yeah. Right? So... Well- there's an argument to be made for both, but they are both really different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this is the argument he's using. Sure. Um, to justify his behavior, which will follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, he's critical of these monks because he sees, you know, uh, he sees, uh, what's the word? Um, 
self-control, I guess, as yeah. as backward. Yeah, well, and um, I, but I can it, imagine you'd see a lot of old monks who really had made no contribution <laughs> in their whole life. You know, they're they're mm-hmm. sixty, they're dying, they've done nothing but live in the same place with the same twenty people for their entire life. They've mm-hmm. memorized all of scripture, but what has that done for anyone? I, I can there's there's criticism to be made for that kind of lifestyle for sure. Sure, uh, and at the time you have self-flagellation, so they're whipping themselves for oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> things they think they did wrong, and they're fasting for days at a time. And yeah. not that there's something wrong with fasting, and I you could argue about self-flagellation, <laughs> I guess, if you wanted. Uh, sure, um, but like you see those things, and they look rather autoerotic, so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I so, do. Yeah, and not to say that you can't be a good monk. Uh, I, I actually have a friend who's a monk, and I think he's great. Right. So, but, yeah. Um, so, that's why... Uh, anyway, so that's really why that whole background there, that's why Urbain mm. Grandier started calling himself the secular priest. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That was what he was calling himself, the secular yeah. priest. Because he th- he was like... Well, we'll get into it later. We're mm-hmm. just going to finish with this summary so it can get to Nancy Wake. Um, and then later on to Grandier's actual story. Mm-hmm. But the point is, he's in Ludun uh, performing his priestly duties, delivering loud and persuasive sermons, arguing with local monks and intellectuals, and having all kinds of sexual affairs with women in the city of Ludun. Hmm. And it was a rollicking good time for him, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just as John Romulus Brinkley learned with his bullshittery, the bill was coming. Oh. All right. Good setup. Yeah, I'm ready. baby. Yeah. All right, so... Shall we move into Nancy Wake's early life? Sure. No, we can do that. Because I want to know more. All right. Well, (laughs) here we go. Now, to begin, I have to admit something and perhaps apologize to you and the listeners. It seems that in my fervor, I have misled you all. You see, I have long said that nothing good can come from New Zealand. (laughs) And this is mostly true. Uh, but we have already covered Sir Edmund Hillary on the show, and unfortunately, he's a pretty cool guy. Uh, and he did come from New Zealand. Mm. Further, Nancy Wake, our girl today, is such a goddamn legend and badass, and she's also from New Zealand. <laughs> so, okay, yeah. what you're telling me is that you wrote this entire episode in a state of severe cognitive dissonance. <laughs> Like the rest of my life, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, so I will admit that New Zealand can be right twice in all of history. But that is That's it. That's debatable. <laughs> there, there will not be a third time. So you get Nancy Wake, you get Edmund Hillary. That's it. Fuck off, you two monstrosity islands just swimming about in your sea of shit. <laughs> all right. Your anyway. hate grows darker every week. <laughs> it's a downward spiral. We are going to get flagged for hate speech. <laughs> In fact, some of our listeners might do it as a joke. <laughs> well, mm. yeah, at least I'll go don't. down fighting. <laughs> fighting against the evil darkness that is New Zealand. Mm, yeah. <laughs> All right, so she was born in New Zealand. Yes, Wellington, New Zealand. Not, not oh! Less. On August 30th, 1912. 
How about that? Yeah. So Nancy was the youngest of six children. Her father, Charles Wake, was a charismatic and handsome journalist, and her mother, Ella Wake, did not have any description that I could find. Typical. Yeah. Uh, and for those of you interested in lineage, which is probably no one, Nancy Wake's family came from a strong English background, but also had French Huguenot in their blood, which is interesting because oh. you brought up the Huguenots with that uh, mm. Huxley quote. <clears throat> but she also had Moari. Maori. Maori. <laughs> it's so easy. Ma. Maori. Ma. Ori. Uh huh. <laughs> it's the indigenous group of New Zealand. <laughs> gotcha. <Yeah. laughs> okay. But thank God the name New Zealand basically right away. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We're leaving New Zealand. We're out of New Zealand. So, roughly okay, two that's... years after her birth, her whole family moves over to Sydney, Australia. And for mm. a little while, life uh, for young Nancy goes kind of well. Um, mm -hmm. She attended school, but was kind of a loner and a rebel. Particularly because she was significantly younger than her other siblings, and also because her mother oppressively practiced religion, which Nancy didn't like. What does that mean, oppressively practiced religion, James? Uh, that's all I could find. So, uh, she, her mother forced... So, the only thing we know about her mom <laughs> is that she was very religious and oppressive. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> So I, I think she made Nancy pray a lot and, you know, follow all the, the rules. And Nancy saw it as oppressive. And, gotcha. Yeah. Then things get a lot worse. Okay. Her dad went back to New Zealand to work on a movie and uh, well. never returned to his family. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a movie was it? Uh, it was it was a movie about the indigenous people of New Zealand. <laughs> what? That's all. Yeah. He was like on the, on the natives. And then he was like, oh, yeah, God. fuck it. Fuck family. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just make movies. Yes. Okay. It's 1914. <laughs> a good year. Yes. The world. Very, very good year. 1914, nothing went wrong. Nothing. No. So he moved to New Zealand, uh, never returned to his family, and he also sold his house back in Australia and kicked out his own children and wife. What? <laughs> What a douche! Yeah. Uh, so oh, wow. Nancy okay. said uh, she described this in her, her own words. I adored my father. He was very good looking, but he was a bastard. <laughs> Which uh, great, thank you, Nancy. So, <laughs> okay. After oh. this, Nancy's unstable relationship with her mother deteriorated further, and finally, at age sixteen, Nancy had had enough, and she ran away from home. <sighs> Which is, I mean, I just say that, but she's 16 in Australia yeah. in, like, 1920 or something. Yeah, but being 16 at this time is like being 35, so <laughs> I'm not impressed. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, uh, she began working as a nurse for a little while, uh, okay. until her aunt in New Zealand sent her 200 pounds as a sort of gift or early inheritance fund. But back then, 200 pounds was quite a bit of money, right? I guess so. It was, because I did the research. I did not do the research, but it was. So Nancy right. decides that Australia sucks ass, and Europe is where it's at. So she flies to New York, then London, and then Paris. But she's not sightseeing. 
Oh, really? No. She's not still, at all. No. <laughs> Completely not, on not mission. At all. She goes to New York and London and Paris and doesn't even see the things. No. She when she saw. So on mission, she can't even focus exactly. on anything else. Yeah. yeah. When she okay. saw the Tower of London, she gouged out her own eyes because that's how serious she was. Because <laughs> sightseeing is the devil's work. Right. No, I made that up. She still has both okay. of her eyes for now. No, I'm kidding. Oh, shit. She, no, she she doesn't lose her. I'm just okay. I'm just bullshitting. Anyway, so okay, okay. She uh she studied and became a journalist in London, and then worked for American newspapers in Europe, and then in 1933 she interviewed fucking Adolf Hitler. How did that interview go? Poorly. <laughs> did you read the interview? No, I couldn't find it Damn fucking it. anywhere. I know. <laughs> so okay. bad. Okay. But but right. she did it anyway. Yeah. All right. That just seems like a major milestone. <laughs> <laughs> or a major tombstone, actually. Oh, because uh, yeah, just like the the pizzas. It's not a major tombstone unless you have two of them slapped together like a giant pizza sandwich. That's right. That's a major tombstone. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. if you eat that, you become a milestone. <laughs> and if All you right. eat too many, you'll get a kidney stone. But that's tombstone uh, pizza. It's the way of the way. All right. It's the way of the West. <laughs> the way of the West. <laughs> the way of the West. <laughs> right. Yep. Okay. So, so she uh, she really seemed to enjoy this life of traveling about and going not to seeing fancy anything. parties. Mm -hmm. No, not yeah. seeing anything. No. Right. No, right. No, no. No. Going to fancy parties. Yeah. Meeting all sorts of exciting people and experiencing Europe, except okay. for the sightseeing. She did none of that. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. She probably did. I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on the subject. Oh, okay. Then, but you said she didn't go for the sightseeing. So, like, uh, mm, uh, uh, are you a liar, James? Oh my God, are we gonna get into that? That could be a whole saga of stories. No, let's not. Uh, no, because we yeah, all know I am a liar. But yeah. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Then something happened that changed okay. her whole life. Oh, and I, I shouldn't be joking about this. is This is pretty rough. Um, oh, trigger okay. warning. For you, uh, you people who haven't figured out how to put on your big boy and big girl pants yet. So, <laughs> so she began hearing about some trouble in Germany and Austria in regards to how minorities were being treated, particularly the Jews. Aha. Uh -huh. And remember, it's the 30s. So she right. and some of her uh, fellow journalists decided to travel to Vienna to investigate. And for a little while, things seemed fine until one night Nancy heard a commotion in the streets and came out to find a parade of Nazi stormtroopers wheeling about giant wheels to which several Jewish people were chained. What? Like, like the braking wheel or whatever? Kind of, except they're, they're just rolling them through the streets. Oh my god. And while they're doing this, the stormtroopers are whipping the Jewish people relentlessly. See... Wow. Okay, carry on. Sorry. Yeah, so uh, it was here that Nancy's life of carefree traveling and partying pretty much stopped in its tracks. And in her own words, she later said, I resolved there and then that if I ever had the chance, I would do anything, however big or small, stupid or dangerous, to try and make things more difficult for the Nazis. And she fucking did. <laughs> Okay, good to know. <clears throat> yeah. Though I'm getting a... I'm getting a... a, a uh, a, uh, a feeling a hernia? That, uh, oh. Oh, yes. Well, I already have a million of those, but I, I don't. I don't. <laughs> you well, didn't laugh, so. Well, <laughs> <laughs> right, well, what is your feeling? Um, I'm getting this feeling that, like, 
So she was a party girl? Is that what I'm understanding? Kind of. Kind of. I mean, she had a good job and, and whatnot, but yeah, she... It seems she's I mean, I'm not just... saying that that's like a bad thing. I'm just asking oh, no. the question. Yeah, it, it kind of sounds like it was. Uh, okay, traveling so she all was... around the world. She was young, and she was just sort of seeing the world, and then suddenly her eyes were open to true evil. Is right, yeah, yeah, that's what okay, it sounds so like. It sounds like kind of a moral awakening. Yeah, in a way, for sure. Okay, because like she interviewed Adolf Hitler, clearly nothing really came of that, apparently. Um, yeah. Until was... she actually went and saw what was fucking happening in his country, and then it was like... Oh. Oh, God. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's like, let's go investigate this shit going on in Germany. Mm -hmm. And then, they're wheeling people through the streets. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, it's actually a real real problem. Okay, I'm I'm down. Yeah, yeah. hang on to your bootstraps. I'm not wearing any shoes, but I'll do my best. Hang on to your toesies, your cankles. All right. All right, well, you better hold on to whatever you're not wearing, um, oh, because we're going to go into Urbain Grandier's adult life, unless you want to take a break. I do want to take a break. Okay. Mm-hmm. How long? Uh, a minute. <laughs> All right. I'm going to mark this for a break, and let's just leave it rolling. Rolling, rolling, rolling. All right, yeah. All right, All right I'm just going to make coffee real quick, and then I'll be right back to... Uh, Fidget my spinner. All right. <laughs> Back in a minute. Coming downstairs to do my work. To do my work. To do my work. I'm in the basement. I'm in the basement. Aaron. 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 And we're back. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, welcome back. Do you have some coffee, sir? I have some coffee. And I did six lines of blow. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we drink together, my brother? Mm. What? I'm raising my glass of iced coffee. What are we drinking to? The Welsh... To the Welsh. To the Welsh. May they always... Cheers. Welsh <laughs> in the Wales. Mm. Mm. Damn, that's good coffee. Tastes mm. like poverty. Three bucks at Aldi. What? Because <laughs> I was drinking to the Welsh anyway. <laughs> you weren't drinking of the Welsh. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> Did the Welsh make your coffee? Yeah. In some cave in western England. <laughs> Okay, um, <clears throat> shall we go into Urbane Grandier's adult life? Yeah. Okay, so when we left... Yeah. <laughs> so when we left Urbane Grandier, whatever it is, Urbane Grandier, he was enjoying all the delights that come with being a part of a corrupted church. So he was just in this French town called Loudun, mm-hmm. uh, basically having his way with the populace. Oh, Jesus. And he's just rolling in earthly delights uh, while simultaneously being convinced that he's the good guy. Uh-huh. Right? Because he's the he's the secular priest. He's not doing anything wrong. Yeah. Right? He's just, you know, womanizing and things. Like, yeah. what's the harm in that? Sure. Right. right. Um, so, <laughs> so this man is like, he's not unique, right? Mm-hmm. 
there's a lot of priests like this. Um, and a lot of them are, like, hiding it and pretending they're still holy, but Grandi is like, fuck this. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just gonna do this shit. Um, yeah. so he turns 33 in 1623. Mm-hmm. And shit's about to go down. And this is where his story really takes I'm off. losing you. I'm losing ya. What? Wait, wait, talk. What? <laughs> blah, talk. blah, blah, blah. What? All I'm right, talking. You're good now. All Can right, you hear you're, me? You're fine. Yes, Jesus I lost you. Okay. <laughs> what? I thought I'd lost you. <laughs> oh, Sam. I don't know. All right. So let's talk about how shit went down, all right? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> Grandier does this thing called counseling, all right? <clears throat> oh, God. Yeah, and it's mostly widows um, <laughs> and young women, um, and reports are kind of, like, foggy because, you know, we're pretty sure he was having affairs with it all, if not, most if not all of them. So, sure. uh, and he's counseling this young girl, mm. um, who is the daughter of his best friend, uh, Tricon, who is also the public prosecutor. Oh, shit. <laughs> And she was named Ninon. And uh, by counseling, I mean sexually toying with her. Uh, And by that, like, he helped... What I mean, he helped these girls with their Latin. And by helped, I mean he made them translate the most salacious and sexual stuff he could find. And they just kind of, like, went together until the girls would fall in love with him, basically. Uh, And then they'd start sleeping together. Um, but she's not the only one. Um, he's going after another young girl named Philippe, 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 I don't know. Um, but she's Ninon's sister. (laughs) And yeah, so that's basically what we have. We've got this guy who's womanizing like crazy. Yeah. Um, and eventually he gets Philippe pregnant. Ah. Philippe, 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 I don't know. Too surprising. Yeah. But when he finds this out, guess what he says? Uh, it's the Lord's work. That's right. He tells her that this is her crossed. Her oh, crossed did he really? Oh, that. Oh, he sh- did. That was a fucking He really joke. did. He All really right. did. He's like, he, and then he became really distant. Mm. Um, just stopped seeing her. Um, and of course, this behavior is really shitty. So word gets out. Yeah. Um, and Felipe is so fucking sad. She gets sick. Oh no. Uh, and people start asking Orbain Grandier about his new kid, and he's just like, "What kid? Oh shit." So, just remember, huh. he's been calling himself a secular priest, which means he believes that Christian teaching is mostly bullshit, mm-hmm. but that the church is a power structure that can be used for ultimate good anyway, with all the God and miracles and divine stuff thrown out. Right. Right? So, he's sort of justifying his, like, shitty sexual behavior yeah. um, by saying, like, oh, it's all for the greater good, and, you know... These are petty things. So he was a free love hippie, basically. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like Thomas Jefferson's religion mixed with Bill Clinton's sex appetite. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But it, you know, like the feeling I got while reading this this attitude that he had mm-hmm. about the church is it was kind of like the Lord of the Rings, where they're like, "We'll use the One Ring against Sauron," mm. um, <laughs> and it just doesn't fucking work that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it didn't work that way for him either. Yes. Um, but he keeps getting distracted from his enlightened and secular holiness to go play around with his desires. Hmm. Um, and meanwhile, people are, like, really getting angry with him because they're like, there's this hippie fuck going around <laughs> screwing all our women yeah. and claiming to be a Catholic priest all at the same time. 
Um, so they call a meeting. <laughs> uh, and they go, it's like at this pub, I think. And they just, they're like talking about what should be done about Orbain Grandier. Right. Because he's just a, such a fucking bastard. <laughs> Somebody has to do something. Right. All right. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, Grandier is actually trying to do, seduce another woman. Uh, of course. Um, her name is Madeline. All right. And get this. He falls in love with her. Oh, like legitly? Like legit. Um, and she falls in love with him. Oh, all right. Um, so, like, to him, that was like a huge revelation. Everything sure. changed, right? And he wrote some shit about, like, how he felt something like guilt for reducing uh, love to something like sexual pleasure and the satisfaction of mere lust. Oh, right? interesting. So he's like having an Augustinian moment right now. Yeah, he, he's having a real Augustinian moment where he's like, oh shit, I really, really fucked up. Yeah. Right. Cool. Um, so yeah, this is where things kind of turn around for him a little bit. <laughs> right? Um, a little bit. Because uh -huh. uh, it's not easy to quit a pattern of behavior like that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so yeah, we're not just, we're not just talking about like, so, um, okay, let me just get this straight. Mm-hmm. He gets married to Madeline. Right. Which is directly oppositional to the vow of celibacy. Celibacy oh, is not like <laughs> celibacy is not like, oh, don't have sex. I mean it's still frowned upon, but celibacy is like no marriage. Right? Yeah. Well, and marriage would be much harder to hide. Right, exactly. But he's not interested in hiding it because I think for the first time in his life he found something that was real. Hmm. Yeah. Um, not corrupted by a big power structure hmm. um, or money or anything like that. It was just like he fell in love with this woman. Yeah. Um, and she fell in love with him, and, like, it was a huge, huge dawn for him. Yeah. Um, but remember, there's still a bill for the other shit he did. Sure. Right? Um, and rumors begin to spread anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and they finally, the, the, uh, those conspiring against Grandier finally get a good hit in. Nice. Um, so they open an official investigation, uh, and people just start coming out of the woodwork to report all the times they've seen this guy screwing around. Oh, jeez. Um, some say they'd seen him having sex with women on the floor of the church. Uh, -huh. uh some said they'd seen him playing grab-ass at the tavern. Um, just all kinds of shit like that. All right. Um, yeah. But you know who doesn't come forward? Hmm. The women he had the affairs with. Oh. None of them would come out and say that, like, hmm. it was against their will. None of them would come out and say, like that he fooled them i think they were all just still in love with him sure oh um, yeah which that possibly we'll get into yeah. we'll get into the bewitching thing okay because they a lot of them claim they were bewitched yeah I, yeah which is which is an old-fashioned term for um like seduced i suppose sure um so basically people are really mad at him mm -hmm. all right and they get him arrested good yeah, in, in Ludun. So he's locked up in a windowless prison cell for a couple of weeks in 1629. Not good. <laughs> yeah, and this is where his, his bullshit side reigns its ugly head again. Okay, good. Um, because he writes up this fancy letter to the bishop to ask for clemency. He's like... Um, and I've, I read the letter. It's He describes himself in this letter using all kinds of fancy language. He compares himself to Lazarus from the Bible. Oh, God. <laughs> um, a man who had to die in order to be brought back to life. Mm. It's probably the stupidest thing Grandier could have done because it's it's like the most sanctimonious bullshit. I've come to Jesus thing, right? Um, and when you read it, that's exactly how it reads. <sighs> and so it pisses off the bishop, who then orders that Grandier be treated even worse in prison. Okay. 
Yeah. What does so, that mean? <laughs> that just means like less. He was already pretty much starving, but yeah. he got less food, um, less air, I suppose. Right. Uh, probably, you know, no waste removal or anything like that from the cell. I mean, it's sixteen thirty. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, he was found guilty of the grand crime of immorality in mm-hmm. 1630 and was given the massive sentence of returning to his old job with no punishment. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh. You see, Grandier has friends in high places. I mean, the Catholic uh, Church. Uh, so Grandier is uh, completely legally rehabilitated. Oh, God. But... That's just, I mean, that's the way of the Catholic Church. They're like, oh, he's coming, he's coming, you know. He's back in the fold. He's back in the fold. Yeah. But people aren't buying it. Like, he's not unscathed in the public eye. Yeah. Obviously, right? Yeah. His image is good and tarnished, and the people are watching him more closely than ever before. Good. (laughs) In fact, they're more motivated than ever to do everything they can to get rid of him. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's also some politics involved. I'm sure. Um, there's people trying, like I said, there's people trying to get rid of that fortress in the city. Oh, right. Um, and I can't remember if it was the Catholic, the Catholics or the Protestants who were doing it. But the point is, politics are involved. Okay. And Grandier is opposed, I believe, God, I should have looked into this more. I believe he was opposed to the destruction of this castle. Interesting. Because, um, you know, it was like the only protection these people had from yeah, you know, I'm, invaders or anything like I'm that. I'm trying to think of what a castle... Because two things come to mind. First of all, the storming of the Bastille during the French Revolution, mm-hmm. when uh, there's the big fortress in the middle and the revolutionaries stormed it. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I know that Huguenots, during, who were Protestants, uh, their only way of surviving for a long time in France was uh, setting up in, in fortresses. Um, okay. I, yeah. I've been to the I fortress re- of Les Beaux, um, which was a Huguenot stronghold. So I don't remember, or I, I don't know <laughs> which side it is. Ah, okay, yes, that's right. Okay. You've reminded me, you've reminded Mm me. So, the people were becoming largely Protestant, but the power structure of the Catholic Church was still in place. Of course, yeah. So the Catholic Church wanted to take down the castle, because basically, yeah, that's right, they would hole up in it. Okay. And that's why, that's why Grandier was like, don't tear down that fucking castle. Hmm. So I had that wrong. Um, he didn't want them to tear it down because he wanted the people to have a way to protect themselves. Okay. So that's where the politics gets involved. And because I'm not interested in politics that much, I didn't look into that. Sure. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I did look into this part of the story, though. Oh, no. Um, here's where the story gets a little fuzzy because Mm -hmm. there are two sides to this, right? Right. One side seems likely and the other side not so likely. (laughs) So put on your skeptic hat, James. I've got it on. Because we're starting with the unlikely one first. <laughs> yes. So there's this nun oh, named God. Joan of the Angels, and she's having some weird dreams. Mm-hmm. She claims that one night Orban Grandier appeared to her in a vision as something like a god or an angel. Shit. And goddamn, he was one sexy angel. Whoa. So, of course, he seduced her, and all night long, she was howling like a goddamn wolf. Oh, God. And people, get this, noticed this strange behavior. (laughs) 
Uh, nonetheless, Joan of the Angels went out of her way to pay penance for her weakness, even though she was, you know, unconscious. Um, yeah. She whipped herself and prayed all day long to make up for the terrible and immoral and absolutely fucking steam-toasted dreams she was having about <laughs> Grandier. <laughs> and then she found out she wasn't the only one being visited by the sexy angel Grandier. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was a whole bunch of other nuns who were not only having seriously messed up dreams about Grandier, but like actual hallucinations. Oh, God. I mean, the claim pretty much was that Grandier was so goddamn sexy that he was able to possess an entire convent of nuns. <laughs> <laughs> That's the claim. I love yeah. it. <laughs> now, there's another side to this story. Yeah. And that is that a guy named Father Mignon, who hated Grandier, approached Joan of the Angels and said... Hey, let's pretend your whole convent got possessed and say it was Grandier's fault <laughs> so that we can get rid of him for good. Hmm. And Joan of the Angels was like, hell yeah, bro, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the second story is probably closer to what happened, for Ooh, real. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. But you never not, know. I'm not, uh, yeah, you never know. But we'll, we'll get into it. We'll I've had into. a few raunchy dreams about angels before, so I'm not... I'm, it, yeah, it could but be true. I, See, I'm just not convinced that Grandier was that sexy. <laughs> like, he was a little sexy, all right? But divinely, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Angels. Angels, man. Well, well Grandier Those halos. was a sexy angel. Hmm. What about the halos turns you on? I'd... James. You just stick it right in. <laughs> it's like an ill f uh. that said that. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're I'm going to mark that down so yeah. people from my church don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just beep it all out. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Uh, I'm marking this as... <laughs> Same. <laughs> all right. Man, it's already been an hour. Mm. Feels like ready? it's been fucking forever. All right, so... <laughs> whatever the case, yes. right... It certainly did look like the nuns were possessed. Uh, so Father Mignon and another priest went straight to the convent and started performing exorcism on, exorcisms on these nuns. Right? Okay. <laughs> and when I say it looked like they were possessed, it did look like they were possessed. Oh, because shit. many of them were, like, freaking the fuck out, writhing all over the floor, uh, floor screaming like banshees and, like, making sexually suggestive movements oh. um, with holy relics and everything. Oh, uh, God. Not good. So, not really so different from high school is what I'm saying. Yeah, right. <laughs> so the nuns claimed they were hounded not only by Grandier's angelic self, but the story began to grow. Oh. Uh, they were also being hounded by a couple of demons named Asmodeus and Zebulun. Hmm. Uh, but they claimed these demons were only present because Grandier had thrown a bunch of roses over the convent walls. Ah, yes. I mean, that that explains everything as far as I can tell. <laughs> right, I have, I have no questions. No questions at all. No. Uh, but here's the thing. Show or not, the nuns were really, really getting into this performance. <laughs> so much so that Grandier got freaked out. He's oh. like, oh shit, maybe I'm in trouble. Uh -huh. um, so he goes straight to the bailiff in Ludun and demands that the nuns be imprisoned because they're acting fucking crazy. Right. And the bailiff agrees that, yeah, this is pretty weird. <laughs> and orders that the nuns be taken to prison. Uh-huh. But Father Mignon and his buddy cop priest ignore the orders and continue their exorcisms, so they huh. don't take they don't take him to prison. Sure. So Grandier is like, all right, this is this is fucking stupid, and he's a secular priest, right? He doesn't believe in any of this shit. Yeah. Um. So he gets a doctor to come out and examine the nuns to see if they're stark raving mad or actually possessed. <laughs> uh huh. 
The doctor, who was a skeptic and professional neckbeard, said there was no evidence that the nuns were actually possessed. Ah, there we go. <laughs> so now we have a medical professional from the 1600s, which means almost nothing. <laughs> saying means that he had a hammer. <laughs> Basically a carpenter who got fired. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, this isn't possession. This is like hysteria. Yeah. Um, that's what he's saying. So the archbishop orders that the exorcisms be stopped because this doctor's like, this is a fucking lie, man. Mm-hmm. And that the nuns be locked up, so it's the second time they're being ordered to go to prison. Sure. Um, but the people trying to get Grandier ousted decided to go higher. <laughs> All right. So they went to the cardinal <laughs> to say that the demons in Ledun were so bad that even exorcisms couldn't do anything. So the cardinal responds to this by immediately opening up an investigation to find out whether or not Grandier was an actual witch. <laughs> All right. And also gave the priests permission to resume their exorcisms. Uh-huh. So they get a crack team together. <laughs> yes. You've got the Capuchin, Father Tranquille. You've got a Franciscan named Father Lactan. And a Jesuit named John Joseph Story. And it sounds like a joke. <laughs> a Capuchin, a Franciscan, and a Jesuit walk into a convent. <laughs> but hey, it wasn't just them. There were 7,000 people... <laughs> They're watching <laughs> this shit. What the hell? I know. Can you believe this shit? All right. I can't. So the three fathers load up their so- super soakers with holy water, oh. sharpen their crucifixes, and recite the Lord's Prayer, mm. and the nuns are let out, and the games begin. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so these priests march straight into the convent, <laughs> immediately embattled by shrieking nuns. <laughs> And the number of demons they're trying to expel has increased from three, Grandier, Asmodeus, and Zebulon, uh-huh. to 17. <laughs> All with their own demonic names. Oh, and they're listed, great. but I'm, I'm not going to list them. All right. You can go read about it later. Yeah. But here's the thing uh-huh. the demons are winning. <laughs> They, they can't get control of these possessed nuns. They're just, like, <laughs> freaking out and destroying shit. So, Father Tranquille uh, Lactan and John Joseph, Jean Joseph, I don't know, mm-hmm. they're starting to see their efforts fail. They're, like, getting backed into a corner, and it just looks like everything is literally going <laughs> to hell. And then what happens? Uh-huh. Father Urbain Grandier steps in front of the three priests and starts performing exorcisms himself. <laughs> and here's the thing. Uh-huh. He was doing it in Greek. Oh, shit. Yeah, which is more powerful or whatever. Um, but it doesn't work. And the reason was... <laughs> the nuns said that the devil forbade them from learning Greek. Oh, <laughs> so they can't receive any commands for him, from him. All right. <laughs> but here's the thing. Demons can be expelled using Greek. Mm-hmm. And Urbain Grandier was trying that as a way of proving that these nuns who did not know Greek, only knew Latin. Oh, shit. Were faking it. Oh, shit. So, so they're awesome. just They're just like, oh, we the demons told us we couldn't know Greek. Yeah. So it feels like a bunch of children playing a game in the woods. Like, one kid's about to get caught and capture the flag, so he, like, picks up a rock and says, like, no, uh you can't tag me because I have the rock of invincibility. Right. And the other kid's like, I'm the king of this woods, so I can tag whoever I want. And the other kid's like, I'm the king of the whole world, so you can't tag me at all. And that's what this feels like. It does. <laughs> yeah. Right? The story's falling apart. The only thing keeping it alive is the hysteria and the oh, acting. Jeez. 
So this is all going on for a while. Grandier is like figured out, like, okay, this is clearly a conspiracy, yeah. right? Um, but most people believe that the nuns are actually possessed by these demons. Mm-hmm. So Grandier is taken to trial. Oh, jeez. Evidence is presented against him, and the evidence is so shitty, it's hard to believe. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> so some priest named Father Galt, I am not fucking kidding about this, <laughs> claims he got Asmodeus to dispossess one of the nuns, and when the demon dispossessed the nuns, he literally climbed out of her chest what the and fuck? handed him a written pact between Grandier and the devil. Oh, my God. An actual fucking doctor's note. We still have it. <laughs> there are pictures of this shit online. Oh, yes. <laughs> Can you believe this? No. So that's that was what the claim was. And it was admitted as evidence in a court. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, not a secular court. It was a church court. Of course. <laughs> So, Grandier was found guilty of the crime mm. and was thrown in prison in the December of ni- uh, 1633. Mm-hmm. So, what I'm saying is the bill caught up. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, he already had a slight change of heart, but just you wait. Um, because the next year that he's in prison is, like, oh, God. massively interesting. Yeah. All right? So, that's where we're going to leave Urbain Grandier until we return for his end and death. Okay. I have to say. <laughs> okay. This needs to be a video game. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, the setup where there's this convent and it's being uh-huh. overrun by possessed nuns and you've got, like, a crucifix and uh, a super soaker fold of holy water and then the mm-hmm. rock music kicks in and it's like... And you just, like, kick open the doors of the convent and go storming in, blasting the demons out of nuns. Well, they did make a movie about this story. What? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't remember exactly. It was like a kind of a ripoff. It was, they didn't want to use the same names or some shit. Um, it was X-rated. Uh, oh, what the fuck? Came, oh, of course it, it was. Oh, of course it was. Christ. Um, and the Catholic Church uh, repudiated the film, mm-hmm. uh, which means nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway. So shall we go into Nancy Wake's adult life? Yeah. Yeah. I think we should. I kind of want to lean back and take a little break here and just listen All right, to something, uh, something a little bit different. Yeah. Just uh, All right. pour yourself a nice glass of whatever refreshing beverage you choose, and let's uh, let's talk about I the have... uh, Third Reich. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when we last left Nancy Wake, she had just witnessed Jews being tortured in the streets of Vienna. Not okay. good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> But what is good is that our girl Nancy was doing quite well uh, herself. In 1937, she met a wealthy French man by the name of Henry Edmond Fioca, or okay. Fioca, and the two quickly quickly fell in love. And you, uh, let me start over. My, uh, ah, what? Am I, what? Are, what? You sound like David uh, Berg. No, not David. David Berg. Uh, fucking. Hunter S. Thompson on mescaline. <laughs> That's what you sound like from the movie uh, um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Hmm. He takes a he takes a bunch of mescaline or something like that, and he just starts going. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I've done. Anyway, okay, so good. All right. Mescaline, ready to go. Yeah, now let me let me start that sentence over. Okay. So she founds this. She founds this. <laughs> off to a great second start. <laughs> she finds this French guy. And the two quickly fall in love. And do you want to know what it was that captured the heart of this seemingly free-spirited, beautiful girl from New Zealand? Um... Money. 
No, it was Henry's. I'm just being sexist at this point. I'm trying to be. Okay. So you know. Yeah. I'm trying to be. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. No, it was Henry's proficiency in doing the tango. Oh, so money. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. That's amazing. So she fell in love with him because he could dance really well? Right, yeah. So that's what we need to do. Um, I know. I gotta learn to dance. Yeah. Fuck. Tango it up. <laughs> so the two got married two years later in 1939 and moved to a giant luxury apartment that overlooked the French city of Marseille and the Mediterranean Sea. This is amazing. Yeah. What a, what a story. This is like everything is going right for her. I know. Um, yeah. She's interviewed Hitler, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All the big check marks. <laughs> All the big check. The hit in the bucket list. Yep. You know, just... <laughs> so nice. Right, but this, got... sounds, this sounds like a Disney princess story, kind of. Like it's, so far. Yeah. Yeah, kind it's of. like this sort of Belle, you know, finds this... This luxury, not luxury, but this amazing place. Or I don't know. It sounds like well, um, and she had a tough childhood. A chuff, right? A chuff? What? Chuff? What? Wow! I'm making chuff. up words. No, that's not a made-up word, bro. Chuff? Mm. No. Google no. it. Do it right now. How do you spell it? C H U F F. <laughs> of a steam engine. <laughs> 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 All right. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Industrial Revolution. The world is going chuff chuff. Uh, then it's 1939. Nancy oh, gets shit. married, and uh, it's a good year for Nancy. Right. But you know who 1939 was not a good year for? Oh god. All of fucking Europe. <laughs> In fact, oh my god, Aaron, do you know what time it is? It's time for World War II. I'm just eating my yogurt. Yeah. You. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the Germans invade France. And, uh, okay. <laughs> There's a lot summed up in that sentence, which I'm just gonna kind of brush by. <laughs> Fine, that's our style. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, Nancy is kind of hesitant to get involved, but... I mean, who wouldn't be? Right, yeah. I mean, especially when you have a life like that. It's like... Oh, uh, for sure. Well, That's a real moral quandary. Yeah, really. and she's in Marseille, which is in southern France. She's so far away from the action. Mm -hmm. She just got married. Like, basically Time on their honeymoon. Settle, settle down. <laughs> Time to settle down, yeah. you know? Like, that's the excuse I would use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> really. Um, if I were there. Yeah. Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the problem is, though, is that if you know anything about <laughs> the Nazi invasion of France... The Germans are just annihilating the French forces. Oh, uh, yeah. So she knew ha she had to do something at this point. Okay. So she buys an ambulance with her own money, drives all the way to the front lines, uh, and uses her ambulance to transport both wounded soldiers and refugees away from the German advance. Wow. Wow. And remember that the German advance is like lightning speed at this point. So she, right, right. This is, <laughs> this is insane. Uh, anyway, because she was stunningly beautiful and the wife of a rich and influential businessman, uh, the French army just kind of let her do it, and she was able mm. to go pretty much wherever the hell she wanted to help people. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and it was mm. also, of course, the French military command at this point is <laughs> just right. a fiasco. So they have other things they're <laughs> worrying about. Mainly like, man, they just went around our giant Maginot line of defense. <laughs> and now they're going to beat us in less than six weeks. <laughs> Nobody could have predicted this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
All right. So, uh, yeah, uh, things did not look good for France. They actually lost in about six weeks, which is just what I said. <laughs> which yes. is... It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's really too bad. Yeah. yeah. It's really just too bad for the French. It is. But, so, hey. France uh, is now under German occupation. And okay. northern and western France are absorbed into the Nazi empire. While southern France was allowed to retain its independence, though not uh. really... Kind of, yeah. <laughs> as basically a Nazi client state known as Vichy France. Okay. And it was here in... V and I've heard Vichy. I've also heard Vichy. I'm just going to say Vichy because it's very American sounding. <laughs> uh, it was Everyone here knows we're idiots. So yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And it was here in Vichy France that Nancy escaped to after France fell because she lives okay. in Marseille. Okay. But things were only getting started for her. So, in 1940, Nancy joined the French Resistance and began working as a courier and smuggler, delivering, delivering messages and food to various resistance groups. Okay. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment to introduce a guy named Ian Garrow. So, Ian Garrow was a British officer who was captured by the Vichy government, but basically allowed to freely move around the city of Marseille. Um, <clears throat> kind of like that old chivalry rule of officers respecting officers or whatever. Right, right. So he's, a, he's allowed to walk around the city of Marseille, and it was then that Ian organized basically a secret underground railroad to move allied POWs, Jewish, Jewish refugees, downed allied pilots and political prisoners out of Nazi France and into Vichy France, across the Pyrenees Mountains and into neutral Spain, uh, and from there to freedom in Britain. Mm. So it's this huge, opera huge secret operation. Um, and when Nancy heard about this operation, she immediately joined it. And she became kind of like a guide who accompanied various refugees and POWs from one stop to the next. Okay. So kind of cool. And Nancy was just amazing at this. Um, again, her beauty, her charm, and the influence of her husband pretty much allowed her to go anywhere. And she also had fake pa uh, papers that allowed her to travel through Vichy, France. And through these methods, Nancy helped about a thousand people escape into freedom. <laughs> Damn, it's like one person can do quite a bit, you know? Yeah, and she was part of a larger operation, but she was, you know, a core a core element of the whole thing. Right. However, this drew some very unwanted attention. <laughs> hmm. None other than the fucking Gestapo itself! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and they became very interested in the unnamed and mysterious woman who had been seen on multiple occasions helping people escape from them. And they so, began... hold on, hold, yeah, yeah, hold yeah. on, hold on, hold on. That's important, um, yeah. that it's this unnamed, mysterious, beautiful woman mm -hmm. um, who's just helping. Because that, that is a figurehead right there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like, even if she's not, like, that's a symbol. You have to get a hold of that. I mean, considering, like, the way the Nazis handled propaganda. It's like, you let this, you let this one woman mm -hmm. go off doing this stuff and looking amazing all, the whole time. Yeah. You know? um, that is not a good thing if you don't like, uh, if you don't like freedom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know for I'm sure. Right. Okay. So I just wanted to point that out. No, mm. no, that's, yeah, it has to be squashed from their point of view. Yeah. Right. So they began, uh, they began closing in really fast. Um, and they're, they're identi they're beginning to identify Nancy Wake as the woman, the, uh, the mysterious right. woman, right? They're like, all right, uh, a lot of things start leading to Nancy Wake. So they tapped her phones, opened her mail, and began secretly following her just to kind of link things up. And I, I guess they didn't just apprehend her right away because her husband was kind of a big deal. 
Yeah. And if, Makes you sense. know, his wife got went missing, people would be like, all right, I'm guessing it was the Gestapo. Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't be good. So they're just kind of secretly following her. Anyway, though, the French resistance eventually decides that it was only a matter of time until they got her and that it would be better for her and the entire war effort uh, for her to escape to England. And sure enough, the Gestapo identified her as the gal they wanted just a few days later. Right. So a five million franc bounty was put on her head, and for a brief time, she was even number one on the Gestapo's most wanted list. See? See what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You gotta get them figureheads. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she continued to evade their grasp for quite a while, though, by taking on different names and pretending to be several different women. And because wow. of this, the Gestapo nicknamed her the White Mouse. Because she would vanish every time they closed in. Ooh, Which is I like that. Yeah, it's epic. <laughs> but then it's, uh, it's 1943, and the French resistance branch that Nancy and her husband were a part of was compromised and betrayed by a turncoat, and this, this, blah, blah, the Gestapo just swept in, right? Oh, God. So Henry, her husband, decided to stay in Marseille because he was not a wanted figure, um, and he was doing things there kind of overtly. But mm. he urged his wife to leave. And so she left. Um, wow. He knew. He knew. Oh, yeah, he no. did. He and, was safe, mostly. <laughs> yeah, well. At least politically speaking. Oh, shit. No. <laughs> I just like. Yeah. <laughs> I, we oh, wish. God. But. Yeah. This this was actually the last time she ever saw her husband, Henry. Oh, God. Yeah. Henry him, himself would soon thereafter be captured by the Gestapo and tortured long and hard for information on his wife's activity and whereabouts. God damn. Here's the thing, though. Henry never betrayed his wife, and the Gestapo eventually just killed him because they couldn't break him. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah, and it's it's just amazing that he never betrayed betrayed her wife. And who knows what horrible things. I mean, it's the fucking oh, Gestapo. I can't imagine. It's the imagine. Gestapo, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. what's really sad is that Nancy didn't learn about her husband's death until after the war, and she forever blamed herself for his death. Um, oh, that's just not even fair, it's damn it. It's not. No, it's just tragic. Um, Man. But it, it's sad because the whole the whole war, she's thinking... I'm doing this for because it's right. I'm doing this for France, but I'm also doing it to get back to my husband. Right. And then they win. Spoiler alert. And he's dead. It's just so tragic. That's that is such a sad story. I know. Yeah. So let's uh, let's kill some Nazis. So meanwhile, Nancy was trying to escape Vichy France along the same routes she had helped so many people escape before, and things went well at first. Okay. She managed to just kind of float right on through all the German and French security posts. <laughs> and later, describing these encounters, Nancy wrote, A little powder and a little drink on the way, and I'd pass their German posts and wink and say, Do you want to search me? God, what a flirtatious little bastard I was. <laughs> awesome. Pretty great, yeah. <laughs> But it worked out, <laughs> and pretty much every time she said this, the guards would just kind of blush and let her through without any problems. <laughs> 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 little... God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then things get worse. Damn it. <laughs> so while traveling on train, the entire train uh, was stopped, and all of its passengers rounded up by the Vichy militia and carted to Toulouse to be interrogated about the resistance. And Nancy was, of course, among them. Oh, God. So Nancy was soon found out and interrogated for four rough days, but refused to tell her captors anything. 
So she's not telling any anything about, you know, who she's working with, any names, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it was then that this guy named Albert Gerisset came to her rescue. And Albert was another organizer of the French secret escape route and resistance movement, and he knew just about... Or, bleh, he, he knew how important Nancy was to the whole operation. So he approached her captors and explained that Nancy was not trying to conceal her identity because she was a member of the resistance, but instead because she was his mistress and they were trying to hide hide this from her husband. Oh shit, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and of course Nancy just plays along with this perfectly right from the beginning. And the two were eventually allowed to leave captivity because this is France and everyone knows that the, the mistress deal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. So pretty okay. cool. But the rest of her escape uh, from France was not easy. She tried six different times to escape, and each time was thwarted by various reasons. Um, and we don't have the details really, but one time she had to jump from a moving train that was about to be stopped and searched. Another time she had to run from German soldiers who were firing at her. She regularly had to go days without food and usually spent the night sleeping in sheep pens to avoid detection. And it was not until her seventh attempt that she managed to cross the Pyrenees into neutral Spain. Mm. But of course, this involved her nearly freezing to death in the snowy mountains before making it through them. Right. But she did. She made it to Spain. And from there, she soon escaped to Britain. Okay, good. So, yeah. Once in Britain, Nancy immediately applied for work with the Special Operations Executive, or SOE for short. Oh, baby. Yeah, so it's so uh, SOE gratefully accepted her application because they knew of her exploits in France. And so... Give this woman a desk. Sign her up right now. Yeah. Oh, uh, but they don't give yeah. her a desk. Oh, no. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Uh, so they, they're like, okay, we need to... Corner office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No? No. <laughs> no, no, no. They're sending her back into the field. <laughs> oh, God. So, uh, Nancy... Well, she does good work is in the field, so that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, she knows, yeah. How, it, she knows how it works. Mm -hmm. um, so they're like, all right, we're going we're gonna to give her lightning-fast uh, training. So they ship her up to Scotland, um, where she is trained in survival skills, silent killing, codes and radio operation, night parachuting, plastic explosives, sten guns, rifles, pistols, and grenades... <laughs> yeah, so jack of all trades. Wow. Yeah. And she was described by her senior officer as, quote, a real Australian bombshell. Tremendous <laughs> vitality, flashing eyes. Everything she did, she did well. Mm. Uh, she was also an expert shot and put the men to shame by her cheerful spirit and strength of character. Was that the same officer? Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it's kind of like a... a <laughs> A uh, female Captain Australia. <laughs> Pretty cool. Wow. So, okay. Uh, after a few weeks of that, on March 1st, 1944, Nancy and her operative partner, John Farmer, <laughs> were secretly... That's a fake name. It is. <laughs> okay. They're secretly parachuted into central France. And... Their mission was to organize the scattered French resistance fighters, establish arms and ammunition stations, and set up radio communication with England. Yeah, you know, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, and those are the small things. The big thing is that this is March of 1944, and D-Day is coming up in just a few months. And the Allies needed German forces in France to be weakened from the inside first. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, not at all. No, just the, the entire fate of the world. <laughs> yeah, so when Nancy lands, she landed in a tree and her parachute became stuck. So she's oh. <laughs> she's just hanging there in the tree. Um, but, of course, it's the middle of the night, so... Right. Who can blame her? Anyway, the leader of the French resistance in the area found her and remarked, I hope that all of the trees in France bear such beautiful fruit this year. Oh, God, and, come on. I know, and she just replies, don't give me that French shit. That's my new motto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. So she links up with the resistance, but things are not looking good. Um... The French resistance in this area had about 3,000 operatives, while there were about 22,000 occupying German soldiers in the region. Yeah, so one to Mm. seven odds, pretty much. Yep. Um, And so Nancy immediately gets to work. She establishes radio contact with SOE back in English. Back in England. Well, probably in English, but back in England. (laughs) And manages to personally help recruit another 3,000 or so French people to the resistance, nearly doubling their forces. Gotcha. Uh, Then the French resistance leader, Gaspard, decided that Nancy could not be trusted because A, she was a woman, and B, she was English. (laughs) Did he say this to her face? No, she did not. He did not. To her. Oh, because no. I feel like she would have probably said, don't give me that French shit. <laughs> <laughs> she, pre- she pretty much does. Okay. So he doesn't like her because she's English and a female. So <laughs> he tells, and this is the leader of the French resistance in the area, remember. She's been gotcha. sent to help him. Right. But he tells one of his men to get Nancy drunk, seduce her, and then slit her throat and take Wh- her money. Are you kidding? No. <laughs> That's the stupidest plan. I know. <laughs> this is World War II. <laughs> I think They're allies. there are bigger fish to fry. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Oh. Thankfully, okay. though, Nancy hears this whole discussion secretly. Of course. <laughs> um, so when the man who was supposed <clears throat> to seduce and murder her approached her, she boldly recited the entire plan to him. <laughs> And he decided okay. not to kill her. <laughs> of course not, because that would be fucking scary. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh-huh. So, uh, from then on, Nancy worked with a different, friendlier resistance leader. <laughs> oh, good. Who was oh, like, good. you idiot, we're fucking allies! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alright. So, this is what Nancy is doing at the time. She's radioing to London to tell them where they can drop weapons and <clears> ammo... <throat> Then they drop the weapons and ammo in occupied France. Nancy picks it all up and delivers it to 17 different groups of resistance soldiers scattered all around central France. Mm. Then she trains them on how to fire weapons, set up traps, and use explosives. Classic. So quite a bit, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the French resistance soldiers just absolutely fall in love with her and also really respect her because of her judgment and experience. Because, I mean, they're just, they're they're farmers, basically. Right, right. And she's been trained by the fucking SOE, so she knows her shit. Well, yeah, she comes in, it's like, all this experience, like, you can just detect in a person. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're scared, you know, your country's occupied, you know nothing, and she's like, alright, here's what you do. Exactly. That would feel fucking good. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, Alright, so. The problem is, the Germans are aware of this, and they are getting pissed off by the growing resistance in the area. 
So, 22,000 soldiers, 1,000 military vehicles, and 10 planes are allocated to the region to squash the rebellion. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I want to say, remember, this is like... This is early 1944. The, the Soviets are... Well, the Eastern Front for Germany is not looking good. And they're sending right. a ton of troops that way. So for them to send this amount of manpower to central France is quite alarming. Like, they were serious about this. Yeah. Yeah. And they probably were, of course, worried about the inevitable American invasion. Of course, and, yeah. 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 I mean, they knew it was coming. They didn't know how it was going to happen. Sure. But, yeah. 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 So pretty much all-out war ensues between the, the resistance members and the Germans, with Nancy continuing to run from group to group to deliver messages, ammunition, and morale boosts wherever she was most needed. Uh, at one point, the group she was with uh, broke into a rout as the Germans pressed in. So Nancy jumps into a car and went tearing off full speed to avoid the Germans. Oh, shit. Of course, this car caught the eye of a German fighter pilot who was flying over the area. So he oh. swoops down and just starts unloading his machine guns on the car, with his spray of bullets getting closer and closer to the fleeing car. <laughs> just like Indiana Jones. It, yes. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. So Nancy said the two got so close that she could actually make out the pilot's goggles and headgear. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> yeah. And at the last second, Nancy whips open the door and jumps out of the speeding car just as the pilot's bullets caught up with the vehicle and just pulverized it. Oh, so, well, good timing. <laughs> a movie scene, yeah. <laughs> good yeah. timing, also. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, so after this, she links up with the surviving resistance forces, uh, and she only gets more bad news. The radio operator of the group had destroyed all of his radio codes and his radio in order to prevent the Germans from capturing it. And this was okay. necessary, but now the group was stranded without any means of communication with other resistance groups or London. So... Nancy volunteers to bike to the nearest <laughs> resistance group in order to reconnect the communication. That's amazing. Uh, there are two problems with this, though. Oh, okay. Uh, number one, the resistance members warned her that there were many German patrols between them and the other group, and that she had no papers. Right. Thus, if she was captured, she would be killed or raped or both. Who knows right. what? Mm -hmm. uh, and number two... Oh yeah, the nearest resistance group was 300 kilometers or 190 miles away. Oh my god, that's a long bike ride, yeah. baby. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but Nancy does not back down. She told the men that if any of them went, they'd probably be shot on sight, whereas she could pose as a simple housewife and seduce any Germans she might come across. Uh, well, obviously. <laughs> right. Uh, also, she had a bike and told them that she would bike the 190 miles to the next group. So then she fucking bikes the 990 miles to the next group. <laughs> so she rides her bike nonstop through farmland and fucking mountains and through several German checkpoints all the way to the resistance group. Wow. And uh, there she delivers updates to London and told the resistance groups of the German activity. And then as soon okay. as this was done, she got on her bike and rode all the way back. <laughs> and she did all of this in 71 hours without pausing for a moment to rest. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. Holy shit. Mm. So by the time she returned to the original group, the bike seat had worn through the skin of her inner thighs. She was covered in blood, in extreme pain, could barely walk, and was utterly exhausted. Shit. She describes her return with these words later on. 
I got back and they cried, how are you? And I cried. Uh, I couldn't stand up. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't do anything. I just cried. And she slumped against a tree and fell right asleep. Um, oh, damn. And she couldn't walk for several days afterwards because she had pushed her body to the absolute fucking limit. <laughs> that is dedication the, to Exactly, admission. yeah. Mm. Yeah, however, her journey had allowed London to be updated on German activity, which in turn allowed them to give direction to the resistance movements. So she basically saved the entire operation in central France. Damn, one yeah. bike ride. Yeah. I'd one small like bike ride for <laughs> one a woman. One small bike ride. <laughs> one, one large one bike very... ride for a woman. <laughs> I, don't I know. was going to make a joke about how... Never mind, just keep going. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. All right. But the fight was not over. And oh, of course not. <laughs> right. <laughs> so once she had recovered, she immediately jumped back into the fight. She joined and led actual attacks on bridges, railroy... 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 Lines, <laughs> and German convoys. And this led to all sorts of adventures for Nancy. On one occasion, her men captured a girl who was acting as a German spy, and her men felt pity for the girl and refused to kill her, uh, which was usually what you did to spies. So yeah, Nancy pulls obviously. out her gun and executes the girl herself, which, uh, which sounds harsh, but it probably had to be done. Shit. Yeah, Wow. blasts her right there. Uh, so she's not fucking around. Yeah. On another occasion, she and a group raided a German munitions factory, and her boys were spotted by a German sentry. But before he could raise the alarm, she snuck up on him and killed him using only her bare hands. Well, shit, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and later in a 1990s television interview, the host asked Nancy what had happened to the sentry. So on television, Nancy drew a finger across her throat and replied, they taught me this judo chop stuff with the flat of her hand at SOE, and I practiced away at it. But this was the only time I used it, and whack, it killed him right away. And I was really what? surprised. <laughs> she was surprised it worked. I would yeah. be too. I, yeah, I mean, exactly. if I, the balls, like to walk up behind a person and just hit them once and hope they die. <laughs> yeah. I'd so be surprised good. too if it worked. <laughs> yeah. Shit. Okay. So during another battle, Nancy's group was routed by German forces, so she and two Americans grabbed machine guns and laid down suppressive fire to cover their retreating comrades. And on another occasion, occasion she and a few other guys snuck into a fucking regional headquarters of the fucking Gestapo while the Gestapo officers were having a fucking meeting. <laughs> and then Nancy... Wow. Nancy and her boys just lobbed a bunch of live grenades into the room and slammed the door shut. Whoa. And 38 Gestapo guys blew the fuck up. Oh, God. And then they escaped. Wow. <laughs> they got away. Yeah. Holy shit. That's amazing. So anyway, the whole region of France is now starting to be called Fortress France just because of it. it's a total nightmare for the Germans as they could not keep the peace. And uh, it's really becoming kind of like what you were saying earlier, this this image of resistance. But now it's all of central yeah. France. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's dangerous. You've got a name like Fortress France. Yeah. yeah. Big deal. Yep. Yeah. 
So the little war between the German occupiers and the resistance fighters uh, here was actually a total resistance victory. Um, they had managed to kill 1,400 Germans while only losing 100 of their own men, and had disrupted German structure in the region so much that even D-Day was probably easier because of it. Wow. So, a big deal. That's amazing. And, uh, and Nancy kept on fighting until France was finally freed. On August 25th, 1944, Paris was liberated and Nancy led her soldiers into Vichy, France to continue the liberation and to celebrate. Uh, this happiness did not last long, though. It was, it was during her return to southern France that she finally learned her husband had been tortured to death, all the while refusing to betray her. God. So tough for her, yeah. Um, after World War II, Nancy Wake received quite a few Allied awards. Uh, from the UK, she was awarded the George Medal. The US gave her the <laughs> <Okay>. Medal of Freedom. <laughs> and France, who just loved her, gave her the Medaille de la Resistance and the Croix de Guerre. The Cross of War. The Cross, something like that. They gave her this medal three times, because fuck it, she's uh, of awesome. Course. <laughs> and how, how, many with these, how many of those crosses we got left over? Three. Okay, give them all to her. Yeah, give them all to her. We love her. Um, wow. But Australia refused to give her any awards or honors. But what, that's obvious why, though. Yeah. Yeah, uh, she's from New Zealand. Well, I mean... <laughs> You don't award New Zealand. Of course, right. It's just like the little shittier brother of Australia. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I believe it was because she was a woman, but um, there could have been uh, other other things as well. What makes you say that? Uh, I saw some writing about it earlier on. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I, I would have thought Australia would have been like happy to give her a bunch of medals. But right, seems... because she lived in Australia for, for most of her later life. Um, right. Right. Interesting. Okay. But they refused it for a while. Um, and it was not until decades later that Australia okay. finally came around and offered her awards. For Christ's sake! Uh-huh. <laughs> and she Give ref- her the medals. Yeah. But she, she refused. refused these on principle. And she later said, I told the government they could stick their medals where the monkey puts its nuts. <laughs> What? I don't know what that means, <laughs> but I'm on board. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, years, years, years later, she eventually did accept the Australian honors, but not until very late in her life. I believe it was like the the 1990s or something. Oh my god. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So that oh, is where shit. we will leave Nancy Wake until we return for her end and wake. Uh... <laughs> Bad joke, bad joke. Okay, wow. That's a, that's an amazing story. Uh. <laughs> drinking coffee? Drinking coffee. Mm. So what do you I, say? Uh, do you think we should jump on over to... End in death? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's go on to Urbain Grandier's End and Death. Splendid. So when we left Urbain Grandier, he was being imprisoned for making a pact with the devil to possess a whole convent of nuns. <laughs> and remember, it was an actual written document, apparently, from the devil himself. Yeah. So, here's the translation. Oh, yes. 
We, the influential Lucifer, the young Satan, Beelzebub, Leviathan, Elimai, Astaroth, together with others, have today accepted the covenant pact with Orbain Grandier, who is ours. And him do we promise the love of women, the flower of virgins, the respect of monarchs, honors, lusts, and powers. Trying not to laugh. <laughs> he will go whoring three days long. The carousal will be dear to him. He offers us once in the year a seal of blood. Under the feet he will trample the holy things of the church. And he will ask us many questions. <laughs> With this pact, he will live twenty years happy on the earth of men. And will later join us to sin against God. <laughs> Bound in hell, in the Council of Demons, Lucifer, Beelzebub, Satan, Astroth, Leviathan, Elimai, the seals place the devil, the master, and the demons, princes of the lord, Balabareth, writer. <laughs> wow. I'm going to make an email chain and send this to all my friends right now. <laughs> well, the document itself is pretty scary looking, because they all signed it. Hmm. And they all have, like, demonic-looking signatures. Oh, wow. <laughs> with awesome. a wax seal and everything. <laughs> um, it's crazy. Wow. But basically, the claim is that Grandier made a deal with the devil where in exchange for three days of unlimited sex from an entire convent of nuns, he would walk all over some holy relics and join the service of Satan for eternity. Where do I sign? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is pretty damning evidence, if I do say so myself. Mm, quite so. Uh, so, of course, it was all rubbish. <laughs> but that didn't stop Grandier's enemies from shaving his entire body to search for demonic marks. What? <laughs> which the Inquisitors say they found. Doctors on the scene said they saw no such marks. <laughs> but that didn't stop a damn thing. So they right. got this surgeon to come in and torture Grandier. Oh, um, at first, the way they did this is they just got, like, a needle and stabbed him straight down to the bone oh, several God. times. Yeah, and of course, Grandier starts screaming because that shit hurts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the torture is so bad that people start to calm down a bit. Okay. Um, several of the nuns start begging for mercy, recanting their earlier lies. Mm -hmm. Even Joan of the Angels, the abbess, comes out with a noose around her neck saying that she must either be allowed to legally take back the whole story or she'd hang herself. Oh, wow. But the guy running, the guys running the show, including Father Lecton, basically says, that's the demons talking, and threatens <laughs> to arrest and execute anyone oh, who tries Jesus. to go back on the story. All right. Which means that a lot of the nuns and even some other people who made claims against Grandier had to flee France. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Grandier was tried in a uh, Catholic court, not a secular court, ironically enough, because, remember, he was the secular priest. Yeah. Uh, he was locked away in some baking hot attic for over a year oh, while the trial went God. on. Yeah, no windows, no nothing. Oh. Uh, and, of course, he was eventually found guilty and sentenced to burn at the stake. Uh, what? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so, yeah cuz he's a witch. Right. They're calling him they're calling him a witch. So, here's the uh here's the actual um the court document. Okay. Yeah, the sentencing. So, I'm not going to do the French thing again. I can't do it that long. <laughs> um so, we have ordered in due order the said Orbain Grandier, duly tried and convicted of the crime of magic, maleficia, and other and of causing demoniacal possession of several Ursuline nuns in the town of Ludun, as well as of other secular women, together with other charges and crimes resulting therefrom. 
for atonement of which we have condemned and do condemn the said Grandier to make amende honorable, or whatever, <laughs> his head bear. <laughs> me. A rope around his neck, holding in his hand a burning taper weighing two pounds before the principal door of the church of Saint-Pierre du Marche, du Marche, or whatever, uh, and before that of Saint Ursula of this town, there on his knees to ask pardon of God, the King, and the law. This done, he is to be taken to the public square, square of Saint Croix, Croix, <laughs> fastened to a stake on a scaffold, and which shall be erected on the said place for this purpose, and there to be burned alive, and his ashes scattered to the wind. We have ordered and do so order that each of every article of his movable property be acquired and confiscated by the king. The sum of 500 livre, livres, I don't know, uh, first being taken for buying a bronze plaque on which will be engraved the abstract of this present trial to set up a prominent <laughs> spot in the said church of the Ursulines to remain there for all eternity. <laughs> And before proceeding to the execution of the present sentence, we order the said Grandier be submitted to the first and last degrees of torture concerning his accomplices. Oh, God. So it's throw in torture right there at the end. <laughs> yeah. He's going to pay for a plaque, basically, saying he's basically re recounting this sham trial. Yeah. And the king is going to take all his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Grandier was literally going to be tortured until he confessed that he was a witch. <laughs> And here's a trigger warning because we're going to be talking about torture. Oh God, no! I would give I would give this an eight out of ten. Oh shit! All right. Yeah. So buckle up, bucko. <laughs> so Grandier was to be was sentenced to what was called the extraordinary question. All right. Uh, which is just a cute way of saying they were going to force him to drink a hell of a lot of water. Oh, God. Two gallons of it, in fact. <laughs> so what they do is they strap you down, close your nose up with a clothespin or pliers or something like that. Um, probably pliers, because it hurts more. Um, stick a funnel in your mouth and start pouring the water in. Oh, and you God. have to drink it, too. Because if you don't, they won't let you take a breath. Oh. So after filling Grandier up until he was nearly bursting, they got out the boot, which is, comes in a lot of forms. In this case, it was something like a vice, hmm. um, which would be put on Grandier's leg to shatter and pop his bones. Oh, God! Despite this horror, Grandier refused to confess to being a witch, hmm. which prompted, uh, you remember Father Tranquille? Yeah. Tranquille, whatever, the exorcist? Yes. Uh, so he is watching this. Grandier is, is is like, I did it all. I, I did everything except the witchcraft thing. Like, I seduced the women. I broke the vow of celibacy. I was a total wretch. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't a witch. I didn't bewitch anyone. I didn't make a deal with the devil, right? Yeah. So these, he's saying this while they're squishing his legs until his bones pop. Oh, God. And Father Tranquille is watching this, and he he's getting so frustrated that he gets out a hammer and breaks his other leg. Mm. So mm. He, he has, his legs are broken. Both. Yeah. And he still never confessed. And this is from Huxley's wow. book. And when the parson protested yet once more that he was innocent, a sixth wedge was hammered home. Oh. So he's between a vice, and they're wedging these wedges between... And it's causing intense pressure. Mm -hmm. So they, a sixth wedge which hammered home, then a seventh, then an eighth. From ordinary, the question had reached the traditional limits of the extraordinary. The bones of the knees, the shins, the ankles, the feet, all were shattered. Oh, the splinters projected through the mangled oh. flesh. And along with the blood, there was an ooze of marrow. Ah. But still, the friars could extort no admission of guilt. Only that screaming... 
and in the intervals, the whispered name of God. Yeah. So the whole time, Grandier was, like, praying. um, Yeah. And begging for forgiveness, and but not for that thing that he didn't do. Shock. <laughs> yeah, uh, so there you go. Hmm. Um, anyway, so Grandier was brought out to face the public, where he would be allowed to make a statement. And he tried to say some shit, but the monks were throwing literal buckets of holy water at him. <laughs> Jesus. So there's no record of Grandier's last words. <sighs> because he couldn't talk because of all the holy water being thrown <laughs> at him. Which is horrible. Yeah. Um, so he was supposed to be hanged before he was burned as a witch. This was a mercy afforded to him because he was a priest and of high standing in society. And that was at the pleasure of the executioner who decided he's suffered enough. We're going to hang him before yeah. we burn him. Um, but Father Lacton wasn't about to let that happen. Oh, Jesus. So during the confusion and the, and the stuff, while the executioner's getting the noose, Lacton jumps out of the crowd with a flaming torch and throws it on the fire. Oh, and burns Grandier alive. Oh. Just like that. Wow. But guess what? <laughs> even with Grandier out of the picture, even with the figurehead of mass possession and hysteria reduced to a pile of ash in the public square, the possessions refused to stop. What the fuck? Because it was righteous indignation turned violent, mm. and mass hysteria has a thirst for blood that can't seem to be quenched. Sure. So, it huh. just carries on, basically. Yeah. Um, so what happened to this Father Lacton? I don't know. Well, he became convinced that he had gotten a touch hysterical and maybe killed a man who had indeed just been a philanderer and a swine, but not a devil worshiper. Alrighty. Yeah, so this started sneaking up on him because he was like, that kind of went really kind of a little too fast. (laughs) I don't know about this. You know, like, those nuns might have been faking it because, you know, um, the castle's gone now. (laughs) Um, You know, the, the, the politics were starting to show him that this might have been something that was used um, interesting mm-hmm, to leverage power for the Catholic Church. Huh. So he's like, maybe he wasn't. De- I mean, sure, he was a you know philanderer, but he's not a devil worshiper, right? Um, so he got sick like shortly after Grandier's execution. Okay. Um, and when he was dying one one month later, he angrily knocked the crucifix out of the hand of the priest performing Father Lacton's last rites. Oh shit! Because he felt such guilt, apparently. Yeah. Um, and this is the guy who broke his legs and Ugh. all the rest. So, and the surgeon who tortured Grandier reported being out one night, and his his uh, he was with a servant who uh, reported the story. Mm-hmm. He reported being out one night and seeing Grandier walking toward him in the streets, oh, shaved geez. and naked, with broken legs at all uh, and oh. all, just as he had looked before he was killed. Right. The surgeon, who again was with his servant, is reported to have demanded into the darkness, "What do you want with me?" Oh. And, of course, there was nobody there, hmm. at least not the, that the servant could see. Wow. And the surgeon fell to his knees and cried out for forgiveness, but he died in a week. Jeez, that sounds like intense PTSD. Mm-hmm. Oh. Intense PTSD and shame. Oh, uh, yeah, guilt, guilt and shame. Um, because Grandier at the time was being, like, everyone was kind of like, oh, shit, did we just, like, maybe that went a little too far, a little yeah. too fast. Yeah. The nuns are saying it, it what didn't happen. You know, there's evidence from these, yeah. uh, according to the politics, that this was just a power play. Like, w- what the fuck? We were completely manipulated into burning up this, you know, this frat boy, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, huh. So Huxley, I mean, Huxley's book on this is incredible because he uses it to make a commentary across not only religious barriers, but into political and hmm. ideological barrier, barriers, which, of course, I love because I've, as we've been doing the show, we've been finding the 
commonalities between large religious movements and large political movements. Yeah, for sure. Uh, as far as how they operate. Hmm. So I've got some quotes from Huxley uh, that I want to read. Yeah. And this is after Huxley basically concludes that, yeah, the guy was like a cheater and a swine. And, you know, he broke the vow or whatever. But um, by the end of the whole story, like, he was literally becoming a martyr. Um, and not, and not, and it's like, huh. it's not that he was not guilty of anything. Right. But, well, the right people got the right story and the right things involved in order to make him out to be this devil. Yeah. Um, which, you know. The other priests at the time were were just as uh, just as philandering. Sure. Yeah. Um, oh, no doubt. In fact, there's there's a journal I was reading. It's in French, and I don't read French, but I got the gist of it because I know some Latin or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and there there's like confessions by this guy named Bouchard, um, who was a priest, and the shit he did was horrible. Oh yeah. But he was he was doing it behind the scenes. Yeah, and it's not that it's not that uh, Grandier was doing it, you know, completely out in the open, but he was at least chill with it. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy did horrible things, and then later on wrote a book about it. Oh god, um, which sold incredibly well, believe it or not. Yeah, there's a lot of shit. In <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so stories like this that. is a this is a quote um, from Huxley regarding Grandier's transformation mm-hmm. um, from this, you know, hedonistic hippie. Um, to somebody who actually like became a martyr for a th- you know a crime he didn't commit. Yeah. Um, so Huxley says the following: This raises a very and uh, very important and difficult question. To what extent and in what circumstances is it possible for a man to make use of the descending road as a way to spiritual self transcendence? Hmm. As first sight, at first sight, it would seem obvious that the way down is not and can never be the way up. But in the realm of existence, matters are not quite so simple as they are in our beautiful, t- beautifully tidy world of world words. Hmm. In actual life, a downward movement may sometimes be the beginning of an ascent. When the shell of the ego has been cracked and there begins to be a consciousness of the subliminal and physiological othernesses underlying personality, it sometimes happens that we catch a glimpse, fleeting but apocalyptic, of that capital O, otherness, which is the ground, capital G, of all being. Hmm. So long as we are confined within our insulated selfhood, we remain unaware of the various not-selves with which we are associated. The organic not-self, the subconscious not-self, the collective not-self of the psychic medium in which all our thinking and feeling have their existence, and the imminent and transcendent not-self of the spirit. Any escape, even by a descending road, out of insulated selfhood makes possible at least a momentary awareness of the not-self on every level, including the highest. Wow. What do you make of that? Huh. Well, I can't read. So. Right. <laughs> well, it just looks to me like, you know, Grandier ended up paying the bill for his crimes like tenfold. Yeah, that's the thing. But still, that last year in prison, he had a hit, and after he got married or whatever, he had a slow change into being like, okay, I really fucked up. I don't want to be a hedonist anymore. You right. know, I, I just, because it hurts people. Yeah. Um, I wish we had more details on his. I wish he left an autobiography. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, huh. there's no confessions from him that I could find. I mean, obviously, he probably couldn't write them while he was in prison. Oh, yeah. But, you know. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> there was one more quote from Aldous Huxley in this book, um, which I really liked. It's actually the end hmm. of the book. Okay. And this is after he finds the the similarities between you know, religious fundamentalism and political ideology and that sort of thing. 
Patriotism, as a great patriot concluded on the eve of her execution by her country's enemies, is not enough. Neither is socialism, nor communism, nor capitalism. Neither is art, nor science, nor public order, nor any given religion or church. All these are indispensable, but none of them is enough. Civilization demands from the individual devoted self-identification with the highest of human causes. But if this self-identification with what is human is not accompanied by a conscious and consistent effort to achieve upward self-transcendence into the universal life of the spirit, the goods achieved will always be mingled with counterbalancing evils. We make, wrote Pascal, an idol of truth itself, for truth without clarity is not God, but his image and idol, which we must neither love or worship. End quote. And it is not merely wrong to worship an idol, it is also exceedingly inexpedient. Hmm. The worship of truth apart from charity, self-identification with science unaccompanied by self-identification with the capital G ground of all being, results in the kind of situation which now confronts us. Every idol, however exalted, turns out in the long run to be a moloch, hungry for human sacrifice. Oh, shit. Yeah. Hmm. Dude, like, when I read that, I was like, yes, he got it! <laughs> and then I was thinking about, like, Mao and shit like that. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, because at the end of the day, it's like, people just start dying. They start killing people, you know, it just always ends that way. Yeah. And to hear Huxley, like, because, you know, um, well, to hear, hear Huxley break it down like that, in the context of this this weird story, um, was really interesting for me. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, but you don't have any further thoughts, or... There, well, so much of... I mean, both of our stories were concerned with France today, and so much of French history is... could be summed up with that paragraph, I feel. Uh, I mean... Yeah. Well, we gotta talk about the French Revolution at some point on this show. Yeah, uh, we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, also the... Uh, the Albigensian Crusade... A crusade in southern France reminds me of this. Just uh, we gotta kill the heretics, and then uh, oh, it turns out that the all of the barons are supporting the heretics, while the king is supporting the Catholic Church, and it gets super complicated. And you realize oh. nothing is as clean as we were told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Go to book. Uh, I'm gonna have to read that book though. Oh yeah, I mean it's free. It's online. Um, it's called The Devils of Ladun. Hmm. Um, L O U D U N. It's a it's an excellent commentary um, on political theory. It's it tells the story and then it gets into Aldous Huxley's commentary, which I fucking love Huxley. Like that guy was so lucid at the time. I mean, yeah. he was paired up with George Orwell a lot, and they were friends. Um, but they had pretty different ideas of how the world was going to go wrong, and it ended up that they were both kind of right. Yeah. Um, you know, in a lot of ways. But yeah. yeah, Huxley and Orwell are, are known for like Huxley's known for Brave New World. Orwell's known for Animal Farm in 1984, and their political commentaries are just so much and philosophical commentaries as well, and even sociological commentaries. They're just so fucking lucid. It's hard yeah. to like walk away without feeling like you just woke up from a dream. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, huh. But anyway, shall, shall we go into Nancy Wakes and in death? Sure. Okay. All right. Nancy Wakes, and in death. So, after the war, Nancy continued to work for British intelligence, being stationed both in the embassies in Paris and Prague. In the late 1940s, though, she returned to Australia, where she soon decided to get involved with politics. 
Yay. Uh, and she ran as a liberal candidate, candidate, which is actually... Fucking liberal. Well, <laughs> in Australia the, at this time, the liberal party was like center-right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, so in uh, 1949 um, uh, Australian federal election, she ran for a seat in parliament, but she lost against the opposition's candidate Herbert Evatt. So she tried again in 1951 <laughs> and lost again. Uh, oh, but this time what? she only lost by about 250 votes. So I guess it was hmm. kind of close. Yeah. This woman fought Germans uh, for the entire war. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But she couldn't beat the most powerful of enemy, the voter. Do you, Down with you democracy! <laughs> So what'd she do after that? She after said, losing? fuck Australia and moved to England. Great. So she worked for British intelligence again for a bit until she resigned after she married a guy by the name of John Forward, who was an <laughs> RIF, RAF officer and had been a POW during much of WW2. I hear a phone. <laughs> it is the Lord. <laughs> it's God and it's for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Phone's fine. All right. So then she she was mar she married this guy and then John Forward. Yeah. Then after a few years, they moved back to Australia, and Nancy decided to try for a third time to get a seat in the Australian government, and she lost a third time. <laughs> oh God. So she finally gave up on politics, retired, and wrote an autobiography, which was published in 1985 and is entitled. The autobiography of the woman the Gestapo called the White Mouse. I love that name. Yeah, I do too. And it was an immediate bestseller. She uh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. She also sold most of her medals for money, <laughs> saying, okay. "Quote: There was no point in keeping them. I'll probably go to hell, and they'd melt anyway." <laughs> oh God! Wow. <laughs> All yeah, right. I love it. Fair enough. So she and her husband eventually moved to London in 2001, where they were welcomed. Mm. Uh, for most of the rest of her days, she could be found sipping gin and tonics in a hotel bar, where she was loved by all. Ah, uh, not surprising. Uh, she, uh, so Nancy Wake actually died quite recently. She oh. died on August 7th, 2011. Oh. Aged 98. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> she was cremated and her ashes were scattered in central France, which is what she had requested. And she is remembered for being an absolute fucking war hero. There have been several acclaimed biographies of her, of her written, as well as an Australian miniseries named Nancy Wake. <laughs> I was wondering when they were going to make something out of that story. Yeah, so there's a miniseries, although she herself uh, watched it and she hated it. <laughs> oh. Uh, and one of her criticisms was, and I love this, the miniseries was well acted, but in parts it was extremely stupid. Oh, don't hold back. No. <laughs> At one stage, they had me cooking eggs and bacon to feed the men. For goodness sake, did the Allies parachute me into France to fry eggs and bacon for the men? There wasn't an egg to be had for love nor money, and even if there had been, why would I be frying it when I had men to do that sort of thing? <laughs> It's great. Uh, when did that miniseries come out? I don't know. I, I was gonna say because I feel like that scene would not be in a miniseries made today, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, here are a few more of her of her quotes that I like. 
Alright. I hate wars and violence, but if they come, then I don't see why we women should just wave our men a proud goodbye and then knit them balaclavas. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Another one. I killed a lot of Germans, and I am only sorry I didn't kill more. Well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then to finish, I found a quote about her from one of the men who fought by her side in France, and he said, She is the most feminine woman I know. Until the fighting starts, then she is like five men. Ah, so so she badass herself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's uh, that's all. That's I a cool superpower to transform yourself into five men. Um, I wonder what I'd transform into. Five, five. cups of yogurt. <laughs> no, it's better than I was going to say. <laughs> well, you'd transform into five burritos in a closet. That's true. <laughs> yeah, just. Big, oily, and ready for people to put in their mouth. Oh, God. Well, on that note, shall we head to the surface? Yes. So, James, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? Mm-hmm. Uh... uh. <laughs> Bewitch some nuns. That's a Great lie. Idea. That's a lie. I'll I'll try, but I'm terrible with women. <laughs> You're not a witch. No. Uh. No. No. <laughs> what are you gonna do? I have to buy clothes. It's <laughs> <laughs> so fucking boring. I hate it. I spent like an hour at Kohl's the other night trying to get uh, just one pair of pants. And how much money did you spend? I got 15% off and I spent $60 on one <laughs> pair of pants. Fuck off. They're good pants. Alright. Uh, I, I know it's a ripoff, um, but I just need them for one interview and then I'll probably return oh, them. That's so. good. Well, at least we know who wears the pants of this podcast. Not me. Not you. I don't wear pants. <laughs> well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. Feel free to send all your hate tweets to WTADP Podcast. We will read all of them and nod along. If you hate us, you're probably right. If you like us, though, please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com slash We Talk About Dead People. 50 bucks, 20 bucks, even as little as a dollar. As much as it costs to rent a pencil helps tremendously. Our cover art was created by the extremely gifted Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his phenomenal work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of demonic possession play you out. And I also voted for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Hail Satan! <laughs> Hail Satan! <laughs> 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 <laughs>